0: Several weeks ago, we began walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We paused for Holy Week. We spent some time looking at uh, the death and resurrection of our Lord, and we're going to finish up this series this week and next week, uh, walking through Jesus' Sermon. and And as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we've uh, we've noted that that Jesus is describing for us in in this Sermon. What life in God's kingdom is like. Jesus is, is depicting for us life lived under the rule of God, under the reign of God. And, and it's an invitation into, into that life. Pastor John MacArthur summarizes that in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord has touched really every, all the areas of a believer's life related to living within the kingdom. He says, we've seen Christ meet us at every point. So Jesus began with our perspective on self in the Beatitudes. And and then with our perspectives on the word of God in in chapter five. And and next, our perspective on, on holiness as Jesus discusses the fact that we are to have an inward commitment as well as an external commitment to God. He's discussed our religious activity, our giving and our fasting and our praying. He's discussed our perspective on on money and possessions and material goods. And and now Jesus comes to the topic of relations with other people. And, And so the question before us this morning is, what does it look like for God's kingdom to invade our lives and to affect the way that we view and treat other people? As we've walked through the sermon at at various points, uh, we've recognized that Jesus's message was often aimed at confronting and calling out the broken and perverted notion of religion that was present in his day. The religious leaders in the first century uh, we're perpetuating a religion that was in many ways very far from the heart of God. It, wa- it wasn't near to the heart of God at all. It wasn't near to the true intent of God's law. And so Jesus, as prophet and as teacher, is confronting their hypocrisy and pointing us to a better way of knowing God and of living in the world. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We, we, we've observed over and over that, that as Jesus' disciples, Jesus is calling us, to an undivided heart. There's a way of doing this Christian thing, there's a way of doing religion where we can have divided hearts, where where we give lip service to God, where we even perform the external actions of Christianity, but inwardly our hearts are far from God. And Jesus is inviting us to something very different than that. He's inviting us to wholeness, to what he calls a, a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, which is a righteousness that flows from a pure heart. It's an undividedness that that begins to overflow and to impact every aspect of our lives. And so as it relates to this topic of of relationships with other people, Pastor MacArthur explains that the Pharisees were so proud and so self-styled and so self-righteous and so smug and so convinced of their own superiority that one of the natural results of that was that they became totally condemning And judgmental of everybody else. And so it's to this topic that Jesus now turns his attention. So read with me in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the first five verses and then verse 12. Jesus says these words, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. God. Jesus says, "Judge. judge not. These are perhaps some of modern culture's favorite words of Jesus. Daniel Doriani comments that whereas Years ago, John 3.16 may have been the best-known scripture of the culture. Today, the best-known passage may very well be Matthew 7.1. The prevailing mindset of the age is, no one has the right to judge me. No one has the right to judge anyone else. And so some have taken these words of Jesus and made them his overarching message, taken to mean that we should never render a judgment upon anyone or anything, that we should never pronounce another person's actions as, or beliefs as, as wrong. John Nolan comments that in a postmodern context, this can be a siren call to radical pluralism. In other words, anything goes. Any belief goes, any lifestyle goes, any action goes, because Jesus said not to judge. But Jesus here is not saying that we're to never call something wrong or evil. That would not make sense of the rest of what Jesus says or the rest of what Scripture says. Judge not is not a bidding for us to leave truth and wisdom and convictions and evaluations at the door. In fact, just a few verses later in verses 15 through 20, Jesus is going to go on and instruct his disciples to distinguish between the good and the bad. Primarily between good and bad people. He says you will know people by their fruits. And he's specifically referring to leaders. He says you must make a judgment specifically about a teacher's authenticity. By their actions and by their lifestyle. This is a call to make a discerning judgment. In John 7, 24, Jesus instructs us, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right Judgment, And so when Jesus here in Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not, his point is not that we should never make judgments, but rather that we must be careful not to live with a judgmental spirit. The word in the Greek here is krino, and in context, it means to judge negatively. Leon Morris says that Jesus is warning against hasty condemnations. He is cautioning us against a judgmental and a critical spirit. Jesus is saying that in God's kingdom, his children do not walk around with looking at others with condescending glances. That is not what characterizes the life and the attitude of a disciple of Christ. And so this passage is a caution to us about living with a critical eye. I wonder if you struggle with that. I wonder if you ever find that you fall into the trap of judging others. I wonder if you ever find it easy to have a critical, condescending spirit toward other people. You don't have to answer out loud because some of us already know that you do. Because we see it in your sideways looks and your passive-aggressive Facebook posts. You've made it abundantly clear. Others of you have mastered the art of burying this, this attitude deep down in your soul. And so you can put the smile on your face and you can be so nice on the outside. But deep down, you still think you're better, that you know better, that you behave better, and that God likes you more. Leon Morris says that judging others is characteristic of the human race. This comes so natural to our fallen nature. It comes so natural to our our flesh to compare and to approve of ourselves and to disapprove of others. Even as disciples of Jesus, we can fall prey to looking at others with an air of superiority and judgment, thinking that we're better, that we possess the ability and, and the right to make determinations about others. But Jesus says this is not what embodies life in the kingdom of God. This is not the life that leads to to true righteousness and flourishing. In fact, having a judgmental eye, what we're going to see is that this is a gospel issue. This isn't just uh, a behavior issue. This is a gospel issue. The the more I've meditated on this passage this week, the more I've realized that that condescension grows in the soil of self-righteousness and pride. That pride is the fertilizer that makes a judgmental heart grow. You really don't get one without the other. Bob Thune says that we all have this tendency of looking towards certain behaviors to give us a sense of superiority. And that as we cling to these things to make us righteous, we simultaneously criticize others for not being righteous like us. For example, he He points out that some of us look to our hard work as a measure of righteousness. Thune calls this job righteousness. Job righteousness says this. It says, I'm a hard worker, and so God's going to reward me. And then conversely, it says, I'm better than others who don't work as hard as me or who don't have as good of a job as I have. And so we look down our nose at other people who don't have our work ethic, at least how we've determined their work ethic to be. Or don't sit in our position in the company. Or maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe it's not your job that makes you feel superior. Maybe it's your family. Family righteousness says, because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Or perhaps for you, it's theological righteousness, which says, I have, I have superior doctrine. And therefore, God loves me more. Maybe for you, it's intellectual righteousness. I'm better read. I'm more articulate. I'm more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. Or flexibility righteousness in a world that's that's busy. I'm flexible and relaxed and I always have time for others and shame on those who don't. Or maybe for you, it's mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged way everyone else should this is a close cousin to woke righteousness I'm more woke than you are and if you're not engaged in my social justice concerns and if you're not posting about it on social media you're probably not even a Christian or legalistic righteousness I don't drink I don't smoke I don't chew I don't date girls that do You know, there's just not enough Christians today concerned about holiness these days. So I'm better than you. Or political righteousness. If you really love God, you would vote for my candidate. And if you were a Christian, you certainly wouldn't vote for that candidate. Or tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded. I'm charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. Thune concludes that each of these sources of righteousness is also a way of judging and excluding others. We use them to elevate ourselves and condemn those who aren't as righteous as we are. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the first century. They had established their traditions as the standard of righteousness that made them better than others. And and they walked around looking down at other people who did not measure up to their standard, their traditions. They would mutter under their breath, those pagans, those sinners. And it's to this kind of self-righteousness and pride that Jesus says to us, do not Judge. And then he's going to go on and show us how living this way. Is a breakdown in our understanding of the gospel in two important ways, when we live with a critical spirit, when we find ourselves judging others, Jesus says to us that the gospel is breaking down in two ways. First of all, we've become blind to our own sinfulness. Is the gospel not fundamentally this, that Christ died for sinners? That while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. This is fundamental gospel 101. We are sinners in need of a savior, But when we live with a judgmental attitude, we are acting as if we're not sinners. We've lost sight of our sin. Look at what Jesus says in verses three and four. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when you've got this log protruding out of your own? Jesus uses this comical and graphic example to illustrate the point that, that, that judgmental, being judgmental is rooted in a blindness to our sin. It's this goofy picture of someone who literally has a beam. The word here would be a piece of wood used for flooring or roofing. It's a massive beam. This is hyperbole, right? This is graphic example to make the point. You have this unavoidably obvious sin in your life, and you're so blind to it that you're worried about the speck. In your brother or sister's eye. So we just went through a list of forms of self-righteousness. I want to pick on one of these. This is just one example of many that I could give. But I've noticed this. I've noticed that with many Christians, especially many younger Christians, social justice has become really important. It should be. As gospel people... We are people of justice. Justice flows from the righteousness of God. We can't have the righteousness of God and not care about justice issues. But for some of you, it's become the standard of righteousness by which you are judging others. With at least some on this social justice crusade, being, being, being aware and active about certain issues is really important on your list. But I've also noticed that being holy is way less important for some of you. In fact, for some of you, while you march and you protest for a cause in public, you also fornicate and forsake your God in private. But you're so zeroed in on being the activist, that you actually criticize those who aren't as vocal about your cause for justice despite the fact that you have massive glaring issues of unrighteousness going on in your life. You see the speck of unwokeness in your neighbor's eye, but you can't see the log of unrighteousness in your own. Again, this is one example. We could probably say just the opposite. There are some massively concerned with nuancing and getting every little jot and tittle of theology right. But you don't know your neighbor's names. And you're so worried about parsing out this church's doctrinal statement that you can't see the fact that Jesus said that we're to love our neighbors. That Jesus said, fundamentally, what it means to be a disciple is to go make disciples, which means you got to talk to somebody about it. I wonder if I'm stepping on any toes this morning. This passage has stepped on mine all week. Because truthfully, the, the, the reality is this. We all have this tendency towards myopia, where we zoom in on somebody else's sin and we can't see the massive area of blindness in our own lives. But don't miss it. Don't miss what Jesus does in this example. There is no one listening to Jesus who is represented as the one with the speck in his eye. Everyone who's listening to Jesus is the man with the plank protruding. That's all of us. He's talking to all of us. We need to receive that this morning. In the early 1900s, the, the Times published this question, what's wrong with the world today, in their newspaper, and, In response to it, G.K. Chesterton wrote this. He said, Dear Sirs, regarding your article with what's wrong with the world, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. This, Jesus says, is the first step to letting the gospel inform your critical spirit. It's to say with Chesterton, I am. I have the log. I'm prone to this. But the problem starts with me. We need to regain a clear view of our sinfulness. Secondly, we need to regain a view of God's mercy. A judgmental spirit is indicative not only that we've lost sight of our own sin, but also that we've lost sight of God's mercy. We need to regain a view of God's mercy. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we live with a critical spirit, we've lost sight of the fact that we are expecting God to live very differently with us. We are presuming upon God to deal kindly with us and not as our sins deserve. But Jesus says that if we lack mercy and kindness toward others, our presumptions may be wrong. He says that the measure with which we treat others is the measure of mercy we'll experience. In fact, this is a consistent teaching that we encounter from the lips of Jesus Christ. If you go back to Matthew 6, in the model prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray. Father, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And then he adds this addendum in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. And later in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to tell a parable titled The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant. And essentially, the parable goes this way. A man was forgiven an insurmountable debt, an unthinkable amount of money. He owed an unthinkable debt and the king forgave him. Let him off the hook. And on his way home from having been forgiven an unthinkable debt, this man encounters a man who owed him. Some money. And instead of reciprocating the mercy that he had just received, he demands this man pay him. And when the king hears of it, he's furious and has the man thrown in prison. What's the message of the parable? What's Jesus saying here? It's this. If you lack mercy toward others, it indicates you lack mercy. An appreciation for God's mercy. It could be revealing that you don't truly have a new heart. As it relates to judging others, a, a condemning and critical spirit could ultimately be an indication of a failure to understand and to apprehend grace. Leon Morris says to be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. The church father John Chrysostom says that thou art making the judgment seat dreadful to thyself and the account strict. See, if you fail to express grace to others, it it reveals that you have failed to apprehend the grace of God offered to you. And a rejection of God's grace means that you will experience his judgment. So let me make this plain. An authentic Christian, A person who's truly experienced the grace of Christ, whereby it has changed their hearts, will not live in an active pattern of judging and condemning others. It is uncharacteristic of a life that has truly understood and experienced the mercy of God. So if you find yourself caught in this sin, what should you do? Jesus gives us three things. First of all, he says, you need to acknowledge your sin and you need to turn from it. Look at verse five. He says, you hypocrite. We can stop right there. See your condescending eye for what it is. It's hypocrisy. Call it out. Confess it to God and turn from it. Don't live in a way where you presume upon God's mercy toward you. And don't live in like pattern. So he says acknowledge your sin. Turn from it. Secondly, he says adjust your focus. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't deny in this example. The fact that your brother has a speck in his eye. He doesn't deny that your brother may need to get that speck out of his eye. The point is, however, that before you're ready to help him with his problems, you first need humility and holiness. You need to look inward and upward before you look outward. So you need to first live with a humble awareness of your own shortcomings. Your your first priority is to remove the sin from your own life. To take a, a long examination of numero uno consider yourself. And then secondly, live with a constant awareness of God's patience and kindness toward you. If you know your own propensity to sin, and if you know God's propensity towards being patient with you, shouldn't that change your attitude toward others? So before looking at others, we need to stop and we need to examine ourselves and we need to consider the unbelievable patience and grace and kindness of our God toward us. It is says, then and only then should we look outward. So Jesus says we need to adjust our focus. Adjust our focus away from constantly looking down our nose at others. And remember that we too are sinners and that God has been patient with us. And then thirdly, Jesus says that we actively treat others the way we wish to be treated. Verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law And the prophets. We refer to this verse as the golden rule. We grew up in elementary school learning the golden rule. We learned it in kindergarten. But these words are deep and they're profound. Jesus says they are the law and the prophets. In other words, the law and the prophets can be summarized. This is an amazing statement in this language of whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. The law is fulfilled not merely in treating others fairly, Jesus is saying, but in treating others graciously. The way that you want to be treated, the way you want God to treat you. In fact, the way God has treated you. This is the way that you're to treat other people. The fulfillment of the law has come through Jesus Christ. Right earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that Jesus shows up and he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus is the embodiment of the law of God. You want to see what God's like? You want to see what his character is like? You want to see what the law was truly about? You look at Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And how has Jesus fulfilled the law? By loving us and giving himself up for us. By showing us unbelievable kindness and grace. And so Jesus says, This is how God is calling you to live with your neighbor. This is how God is calling you to live with your coworker. This is how God is calling you to live with those frustrating family members. With grace, with kindness, with love, with humility, with an awareness. That you're no better. Your sins may look different, but they still stink. Jesus says this is the law and the prophets. All of those laws about providing space for the widow to glean. All of those laws about welcoming in the sojourner. All of those laws Going all the way back to Abraham, which was, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. The law, Jesus is saying, is summarized in this. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets. This is Jesus and his gospel. This is how we view and we treat one another in God's kingdom. And and church, isn't this the way to life? Isn't this life everlasting? Isn't this a life of flourishing? To be treated the way we want to be treated? So Jesus says, treat others the way you want to be treated. Let's pray together. Lord, your word has a way of holding up a mirror. And exposing us. God, our flesh has a way of wanting to justify our sin. Wanting to make exceptions for our sin. Wanting to say, it's different for me. Holy Spirit, I pray that in this moment you would keep us back from making excuses From thinking that we're the exception to this rule. That God we would look full on in the mirror. And not be like the person. Who's blind to their sin. That God we would see it. We would confess it. That we would turn from it. And that our our turning from it. Would be fueled by the gospel. That God you have been gracious toward us. You've been patient toward us. Lord. You could have, you had every right to look down at us and to judge us. But Jesus, you took on flesh and became one of us. You live life beside us and you gave yourself up for us. Help us to live in that pattern of love. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. As we do every week, as we hear God's word, there's a call to response. Will we walk in obedience to King Jesus and embrace the life that he's calling us to, which is the good life, church? Or will we harbor our sin and live in disobedience? I want to call us this morning, maybe you need to spend some time this morning confessing your sin of being judgmental. Be freed from that. Remember the grace of God. Remember that while you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. He loved you. I just want to give us some space here to to respond to this word by maybe spending, spending a moment in confession. And then let's, let's, let's relish this fact that God has been merciful toward us. We're going to sing the song, Mercy. Let's reflect on the fact God has been so merciful to us. It's, it's going to be the mercy of God that fuels us to be merciful people. Amen? So let's celebrate God's mercy, and then let's go out of here as merciful people. You respond as the Spirit leads. Buster and I and Matt will be available at the front if you need prayer or if you want to talk, we're available. So that's always the case. You respond as God leads.